All right, starting in verse 3, chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Teach and encourage these things. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Instruct those who are rich in the present age to not be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that may take, they may take hold of what is truly life. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I appreciate the clap. Whoever's clapping, keep doing that. Let's, let's do that. Hey, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Brandon. I serve as one of the pastors here. We're really glad that you're with us this morning. Um, before we jump into uh, our teaching time, actually, I want to just take a moment to uh, lead us in prayer, uh, kind of our prayer for renewal for uh, Ukraine this morning. As we think beyond just political realities, we have brothers and sisters in Christ in the Russian church and the Ukrainian church. And so would you just join me in, uh, in just asking God to be merciful and to, to bring justice uh, to the situation? Our Father in heaven, we join with the psalmist in crying out, how long, O Lord? How long do we continue to live in injustice in a world full of violence and envy and greed and all of the things both inside and outside the human heart that drive the dehumanization, the degradation, and the violation of your image bearers? We long for peace. We long for the vision of Isaiah who calls forth a world and sees forward into a world by your spirit where the wolf and the, the lion laid down with the lamb, where instruments of violence are beaten into instruments of peace, where we no longer hate one another but walk in love. And so God, we cry out on behalf of the Ukrainian people, um, their leaders, their people, God, we pray for God, just that you would draw near, that you would protect them, 
from further violence. God, we pray that you would bring a swift end to this war. Um, God, we pray for your church, uh, your disciples, both priests and pastors and parishioners, as they seek to bring the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God to their friends and neighbors as they suffer this violence. God, we pray that you would uphold them. We pray and ask uh, that you would fulfill their requests for for Bibles, uh, their requests for food and clothing and shelter and the basic necessities. Uh, We pray, God, that you would just meet all of their needs. I think of the words of Jesus, give us our daily bread and how how real that is for so many right now. Um, And so, God, we just pray for your protection um, uh, for your church in Russia, your church in Ukraine. God, I pray for repentance for Vladimir Putin. Um, God, you pray, you command us to pray for all of those kings and rulers and authorities. And God, I know that uh, Putin has grown up in and around your church. And God, I pray that the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church and those who are communicating with him would call him to repentance, would call him away from this greed, would call him away from this violence, would call him to turn to Jesus, to be a man of peace and all that he is and does, God, I pray that you would turn his hearts. We know that the hearts of kings are like rivers that are in your hands and you turn them. And so, God, I pray that you would turn him away and that you would turn him to peace. We pray for your shalom, your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. God, help us to be faithful this week, to continue to lift up and pray, to do all that we can to relieve the suffering of our brothers and sisters. And God, where we cannot, where we are helpless and powerless, God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. With man, things are impossible, but with you, all things are possible. And so, God, we pray that you would, you would do what only you can do in the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come now to 1 Timothy 6, I, normally we take some time for silence here at the beginning of our message, but I want to actually hold that for a second, and I want to start with a question. Do you remember the first time that you made a significant purchase with your own money? So think back to like a time when you were maybe a teenager and you got your first paycheck or a young adult and you got your first paycheck and you were actually able to go out and on your own buy something that meant something to you. I'll share with you what mine were. When I was 12 years old, my dad helped me start a lawn mowing business in my suburban Louisville neighborhood. And so any kid in 1992 or three uh, we did at that time is uh, basically go to Microsoft Word Art, which is this great uh, design program back in the 90s. And I created about uh, two, 100 flyers and went and passed them out in my neighborhood. And I had like eight or 10 people take me up on $20 a week. I would go and I would cut their grass. It was cash. Uh, I didn't know anything about the IRS at this point. Uh, hopefully my dad paid the taxes. I know I just took the cash and put it in a drawer in a sock drawer. And over time, I was able to, think about that, you know, 20 bucks a week, eight clients, 160 bucks a week over the summer. Uh, for a couple of years, I was able to build up a pretty good cash reserve. And uh, when I turned 16, which is crazy for me to think that's 1996, turned 16, because I have an almost 16-year-old here in a few, week, a few months who's about to get his license, um, my dad gave me his 1982 Ford Ranger, right, which he used to haul wood, and it basically been sitting in our driveway. Look, Something like this, right? It wasn't exactly, it was navy, but something like this. Imagine this, though, like rusted over, just in really bad shape. So I, uh, my dad invited me financially into this. If you want a nicer truck, you can help participate in this. And so we spray painted the truck. 
We put a Rhino liner in the back because if you've ever owned a pickup truck, you know, and I found this out the hard way, that they tend to fishtail, especially on the expressway uh, in rain. So we had to put like 15 concrete blocks in the back of it. Uh, we, I put some new rims on there. And again, as any 16-year-old in 1996 would have done, I went and got one of those uh, CD changers where you take the face off. You remember those? Like you actually had to take the face off and put a CD in there and you hide it under your seat when you weren't in there so nobody would steal it. Uh, and then I got a big subwoofer, subwoofer and I put it behind my seat because, you know, what Christian school kid doesn't need uh, some banging uh, music when they pull into the parking lot? And so that was like, I just remember like the rush of like endorphins, the surge of adrenaline and making that purchase, driving into the parking lot for the first time. My second major purchase that I remember, uh, also in the 90s, uh, about this time, was this pair of black uh, Deion Sanders <laughs> shoes. Because I couldn't afford Michael Jordans, but these were about 90 to 100 bucks, and I got me a nice pair of these Deion Sanders, which again, at the time, this really, I mean, you had to actually go to this place called a mall, and, and you actually had to like walk in and get, it was, there was no like buy now option that you just clicked on. You actually had to physically go pick it out at Foot Locker or, you know, uh, whatever, and, and bring it home. And I just remember walking like flush with cash, thinking I am the richest person in the world. I'm about to buy a pair of Neon Deon Sanders. The third major purchase, uh, some years after that, that I remember is uh, building our first house. So this is uh, I guess about 2004, no, 2006, 2006, uh, James had just been born, uh, Cooper was uh, kind of on the way, and we were needing some more space, was living in a church parish home. I was at this time like a high school pastor. Uh, I made $12,000, my first uh, pay salary, not my paycheck, my first salary for the year was $12,000, and we made $20,000 working as an executive assistant. And I got a huge pay increase, and I went from 12,000 to 25,000. And Emily also got a bump up to 30. So we were making like $50,000. And we thought, man, we're, again, we're rich. So we're gonna, in Louisville at the time, it's actually just as cheap for us in 2006 to build a new house in this working class neighborhood as it was to go buy in terms of our monthly mortgage. So for $160,000, we built this house right here at 7429 Apple Mill Drive in a neighborhood close to where I actually grew up. And uh, this is where we had our oldest three kids. And it was uh, just, again, like an amazing and yet humbling opportunity to learn about uh, purchasing, about economics. Uh, because in 2007, any of you who were adults then, I remember this little recession thing kind of hit where people lost like 50% of their retirement and we lost about 20% on our first house when we went to sell it, which was a whole story in and of itself. Now, what's interesting to me all of these years later uh, is I've, I've literally made like probably hundreds of thousands of purchases since that time. And the question that I constantly come back to and that I've been thinking about a lot here as we approach this week uh, talking about simplicity of our possessions, that's what I want to talk about today, simplicity of our possessions and our stuff, is how much exactly is enough stuff, right? Like one of the things that makes this conversation so hard for us as Americans when, we, when it comes to talking about our possessions is that we live in an environment where we've normalized excess, right? Like it's just normal to us. So one of the, one of the things that, one of the gifts of a pastor uh, to you, hopefully, uh, as we teach and preach week in and week out, one of the gifts of the prophets in the Old Testament was to take things that seem normal to people and make them strange, and to take things that seem strange 
but make them normal by the standards and the way of Jesus. And so what I want to just draw our attention to this morning is, like, it's hard for us to really understand and answer the question, how much is enough, because um, we're so used to having more than enough for most of us. We we live in a a cultural moment when um, we have so much more than enough. Let me just throw some statistics. I'll try not to be Sarah McLaughlin-esque and throw puppy pictures up and sing, you know, I will remember you. But I, I do think it's important for us just to take a look at some of the normal realities that we live in, right? We consume twice as much, twice as many material goods today as we did 50 years ago. Think about that for a second. In 50 years, likewise, the size of the average American home has tripled. The average American home contains 300,000 items in it. Home organization is now an $8 billion industry growing 10% every year. One out of every 10 Americans rents off-site storage. The fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the past four decades is storage. The U.S. has 50,000 storage facilities. That's more than five times the number of Starbucks that we own. Now, so we can look at it from our possessions. We can also talk about clothing and apparel right, which I know some of us are really passionate about. Clothing, likewise, has grown. It's the second largest consumer sector in the world. There's the rise of what many people have have talked about over the last several decades as fast fashion, right, fast fashion, cheap, trendy clothing, mass-produced, marketed by influencers to meet rising consumer demand, right? Think about this. In the 1970s, 75% of all clothing and apparel made was made in the United States of America. Now, that's less than 2% of clothing made in America. So we live in this kind of moment where we have these binge purge cycles, right? Like we we produce, we we overconsume, we dispose of it quickly because of fads and trends. We have all kinds of, you know, waste, human rights violations, carbon emissions issues. Uh, The average item of clothing is worn about seven times before it's discarded by Americans. America buys 20 million garments a year that works out to roughly 68 items of clothing per person per year or one item per week. Now, not picking on women, just these are the statistics, easier to find for women. The average woman owns 30 outfits. In 1930, it was nine. Women will spend more than eight years of their lives shopping, and a lot of men do as well. The average American throws away 80 pounds of clothing per year. And this has doubled in 20 years. We throw away 3.8 billion pounds annually, and 85% of our clothing will one day end up in a landfill. Global pollution caused by textile emissions is the second worst in the world after the oil industry. 98% of workers in the garment industry don't make a living wage. If you're to picture our consumption as a dinner table, a round dinner table, where five of us were sitting together, you and four of your friends were having a meal, and there's five plates set on the table. Imagine one person owning four of those plates, and you and three others gathered around the one, sharing the the, the meager food off of that one plate. This is the situation in the world right now. Developed countries like the United States, Europe, Japan, which is about 20% roughly of the world's population, control four of the plates, or 80% of the world's economic resources and output. One American consumes as much energy as two Japanese, six Mexicans, 13 Chinese, 
31 Indians, 128 Bangladeshis, 307 Tanzanians, or 370 Ethiopians. Now, I say all that to say it, it's a challenge for us. We're, we're swimming upstream in this conversation. Even as disciples of Jesus, we can't act like this doesn't impact how we live our lives. We live in a world that is like a formation machine, recruiting our imagination and normalizing things for us that we just don't stop to think about a whole lot. Josh Becker, which I would highly recommend this book, um, it's called The More of Less. And he used to be a pastor, and he kind of got into minimalism uh, and into this kind of larger trend of minimalism, which again, he says like, you know, this, like Henry David Thoreau and Dwayne Elgin and John Ruskin, like didn't invent minimalism, like the minimalist didn't invent minimalism. He's like, we all learned this from Jesus and Buddha, let's be honest. But like, this is a great little book about his own journey. And he talks about in here, this idea of mindless consumption. And I think that's where probably most of us find ourselves. It's not so much that we, like when I was 16, it wasn't like I had this plan to become like this over-consumer, you know what I mean? And I'm like twisting, I didn't, I didn't have a mustache when I was 16, but I'm twisting my metaphorical mustache going, oh, I can't wait to dominate the world and over-consume. He says this in his book, we never intentionally set out to buy more than we need or spend more than we make, but here's the problem. Mindless consumption always turns into excessive consumption. And excess consumption results in more stress, more burden, more pressure to impress, more envy, less financial freedom, less generosity, and less contentment. And I haven't even begun to mention the environmental impact. So we're caught up in this rat race. We talked about mammon a couple weeks ago, about this constant desire for more. And, and really, especially living in our neighborhood, we, we talk a lot about upward mobility, right? And, and Robert Roberts, who's a professor at Baylor, says this, all the research out there when it comes to getting out of poverty and getting to like a basic level of sustenance, which is what we're kind of talking about today. Beyond that, he says this, upward mobility often ends not in satisfaction and peace, but in exhaustion, disappointment, and emptiness. Now, sociologists, social psychologists, minimalists, they're all catching up to ancient wisdom from scripture, right? Like Solomon talked about this thousands of years ago in Ecclesiastes chapter two. I'll just throw this up on the screen. I don't have time to read this whole thing. But basically Solomon says, hey, I made it my life goal to acquire everything that I set my heart to, and I did it. I, like this is the wealthiest man with more than you could ever imagine, a bigger house, a better job, all the stuff that we think we want. We have a man who has accomplished all of that, and he ends this passage by saying, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says in Proverbs, don't wear yourself out to get rich. Stop giving your attention to it. He says it's exhausting because it never ends, right? The, the goalpost continues to change. You think, well, I'll just get this thing. I'll just get this job. I'll just move into this house. And then it's like, well, this is not enough. I need a bigger house. I need a better job. I need more stuff. And it just, it's this mindless pursuit of more, and he says it ends in futility. Now, when you hear a passage like 1 Timothy 6, and, and we come to these words, I, I realize for many of us, the, these words can be hard words. They can feel like really hard words. And our temptation, I found, as I talk about money and possessions in the past, 
um, I think our temptation is twofold. One is to assume this passage is not addressing me, right? Like, so I wish my parents were here. I wish my neighbor was here, my greedy sister or whatever. Like, I wish somebody else was here to hear this message. And, and I just want us to pause and maybe like ask the question if maybe this isn't a word for us, right? Like, let's just assume together, like I'm assuming when I read this passage that the rich and the wealthy are, is, is me, right? Like, I wanna just read it through that lens of like, we have the highest standard of living, most of us, in world history. Definitely like historically and globally. And we all kind of know that to be true, right? So let's just maybe assume that it is. The second thing I know is a temptation is for maybe us to realize that it is talking about us and for us to get defensive. Like you might find yourself right now feeling angry or frustrated or anxious or whatever. And, and I just wanna say like pastorally, my point here in this passage and our, our point in this series really is not to shame you right? It's not to judge you. Um, that is the work of the Holy Spirit to convict you. Our goal is to invite us into a deeper joy and a deeper freedom, like inner freedom. That's what this passage is all about, an inner freedom that comes from God, that frees us to live out of a place of contentment with God, to see that everything, this is my main thing I want you to get. If you don't remember anything else, I want you to see that everything you own, everything you possess, Everything you purchase, every piece of article of clothing or possession that you manage, every budget, it is a spiritual and moral issue, right? And so let's remember, it, it all belongs to God. And God has given it to us, Timothy says, for enjoyment, but also to be used in a way that increases our love and dependency on God and blesses those whom God has called us into relationship with, who God wants to show that he loves. That's more than anything else the freedom that I want us to walk in. So with that being said, let's just take a moment of silence, right? Like that is, that is a lot. Let's just take a moment of silence. And I want you to take a deep breath in and just be reminded that your Father in heaven loves you, he sees you, he knows you, he knows exactly where you are and what you need to hear this morning. And I want to just invite you to take a deep breath and breathe out. Just ask God what he wants to say to you this morning about your possessions and your stuff. And then I want to pray for us. Father, I thank you that you know us, that you love us. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't have to worry because we have a Father who sees us, who is committed to clothing us, feeding us, providing for us. You are so merciful. And God, we close our fists in fear, sadness, confusion, anger, God, I, we, 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 we are possessed by our possessions, me first. And so, God, I just pray that you would open up our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning what you want to say to us and how you might be calling us into the crucible of transformation so that we might become a people who grow in contentment with you and generosity with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
we have a complicated, I mean, just think about, just, I'm sure thinking for a second, we have a complicated relationship with our stuff, right? It's complicated. But the encouragement that I take from 1 Timothy 6 is that's not a new problem. This is an ancient challenge, right? So just going through this text really quickly, Paul is writing, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, about how to pastor a young urban congregation in a city called Ephesus a couple thousand years ago. And he says he's writing to them in chapter 5 so that they would learn to practice the way of Jesus. He says, watch your doctrine, watch your life, practice these things, is Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Now, a couple months ago, we taught through uh, Revelation, and we looked at the city of Ephesus. And I want to remind you that the Ephesus of that day was one of the financial centers of the ancient Roman Empire, right? The Temple of Artemis, the famous, one of the seven wonders of the world was there. And it wasn't just a shrine uh, of worship. It functioned as a bank where Caesar would deposit parts of his wealth because it was so secure. It was like a fortress. Imagine like Gringotts. Like that's what, that's what Ephesus is like, right? Like New York City, this is the center of financial and commercial activity. Tons of prosperity in Ephesus. When Paul in Acts 19 goes to preach the gospel in Ephesus, and people start responding, there is a riot. Do you remember this story? There is a riot that breaks out. Why? Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus, begins to touch the economic and commercial heart of the city. And when the gospel begins to disrupt commercial and financial activity, you see people riot, right? It's still true today. It disrupted their sense of, of prosperity and the ways that they were used to making money and profiting off of injustice. Now, fast forward a couple of years later, Timothy is now the pastor of this congregation. And some of these wealthy people who've come to know Jesus are now in Timothy's church. And Paul's like, good luck. You know, like, hey, you got to pastor these people. And you got to teach them. So you have the rich, extreme excess and wealth together in a congregation with extreme poverty, all together there in the church at Ephesus. And the question that Paul is seeking to help Timothy work through is how do we help wealthy people? How do we help those with many possessions? leverage their wealth in godly ways, right? So this isn't about like making people feel bad about being wealthy. Like you can be a wealthy person and be super godly. I know very godly wealthy people. I know very ungodly, very selfish and greedy poor people, right? Like everything in between. This is not just about whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor. It's what kind of wealthy person are you becoming? What kind of, you know, person who possesses lots of things, what kind of person are you becoming? So Paul essentially just lays out some really basic truths here in this first section about money and possessions. This is Paul's version of kind of a TED talk summarizing Jesus's teaching, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. So let me just, just lay these out. He gives us a couple of principles on how, like realities that we should be thinking about with money and possessions, okay? First, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. There were some of these wealthy folks who were, who were using religion as a way to pursue financial gain. It's a good thing we don't do that anymore, right? Um, he was saying, there are some in the church who are tempted to use church as a place where they, they build their, their, their uh, network, right? They come into the church and it's, and it's a way for them to profit. He says, no, true wealth, or what he calls here literally mega wealth, comes by learning contentment, godliness, or being like God, becoming like God, being filled with God's love, is actually what it means to be truly wealthy. We'll come back to that here in just a second. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
Now, again, I don't have time to do a whole biblical theology of possessions, uh, but I just want you to understand what Paul's doing here. His choice of language, food and clothing, is very intentional. He, he's taking us to the heart of our discontentment and our struggle with money and possessions by hyperlinking to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount on these two very same things, food and clothing. The word for clothing is the word skeposma. It can mean covering or shelter or clothing. I think it could mean either one or both in this passage. And so you remember what Jesus said, I'll throw it up on the screen, in Matthew chapter six. Don't worry about your life, about what you will eat or drink, food, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Jesus puts his finger on one of the primary things that causes us anxiety and worry in life. It's clothing, our bodies, our image, how we appear to other people. So Jesus is, is really dialing us into the inner battle with our possessions. And again, we could go back to Genesis 3 and we could, we could talk about, this is actually a quote, uh, we come into the world with nothing, we leave the world with nothing from Job, who really is just riffing off of Genesis chapter 3. It's the same language. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Food and clothing. The first temptation to Adam and Eve is food. Are you going to trust God with your possessions? Are you going to trust God with your body? Or are you going to essentially be your own God and determine your own happiness in life, right? And so this idea of nakedness is, is really about vulnerability, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, feeling their vulnerability, turn to food to try to find satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. They sin against God, seeking satisfaction and, and their own desires, and they're filled with all this guilt and shame and fear. And then what happens when God shows up and confronts them about what they've done? They hide. They hide. They make clothing for themselves. So clothing is a response to their sin and their shame. They hide and they cover themselves out of fear and guilt and shame. But notice God's response to them. In his great love and mercy and grace, God goes looking for them and God says, hey, let me clothe you, right? Let me give you a better clothing. He kills an animal. He provides for their sin and their shame with a substitutionary offering, right? So right from the beginning, God covers their sin and out of love rather than fear, clothes them. But as we know, the rest of the story goes on. Because of their sin, they're sent out of the Garden of Eden. They're put under a curse of sin and they're forever trying to deal with their vulnerability by using money and possessions and clothing and stuff. Just like Adam and Eve, we do the same thing. We hide from God. We hide from each other in our nakedness, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. We feel vulnerability. We feel exposed. We feel afraid and sad and all of these emotional things. There's this perpetual kind of complex cycle of discontentment and worry about our stuff. So we look to stuff instead of God for significance, right? That's what we're doing when we buy things. We're looking for significance. We're looking for status. We're looking for security, right? If I have this thing, then, then maybe one day I won't be poor. I, I won't be vulnerable, right? I'll have, everybody will think well of me. Regret, perfectionism, sadness, restlessness, achievements. Uh, achievement. He says all of that is the kind of inner battle that then leads us into this trap. But those who want to be rich fall into a temptation, a trap, for the love of money, not money, but a love of money, is a root of all evil. 
And there are warnings about that again throughout the Bible. I mean, James chapter 5, right? Just again, throw it on the screen. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on. You have hoarded your stuff. And in doing so, you create injustice in the world. You corrupt your own soul and you create injustice. You oppress your workers. I mean, think about how much oppression is happening. Think about wars that are happening right now in the world because of greed, because of our disjointed, distorted, disordered relationship with our stuff. He's warning them here about a life of hoarding and luxury and privilege and self-indulgence that leads to the corruption of our soul and injustice with those who have to provide our luxuries. So Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Watch out for this trap. Many have wandered away from God. It can even lead us away from God and pierce themselves with many pangs, pursuing more stuff. Then in the second section, he says, hey, flee, right? Like flee materialism. That's the whole point. This is not like another passage here. It's all part of one passage. He says, you man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. He's saying materialism is one of the great spiritual battles of life. You will have to fight it with all the weapons of spiritual warfare that God is giving to you. Flee materialism, run to God as your greatest possession. Learn to make God your treasure. That's the whole point of Matthew 6. That's the whole point of this passage. If you learn to make God your treasure, then you will not need to seek that in your stuff. And so all of that kind of leads us to a simple definition, I think, of simplicity of stuff. What are we after when we talk about simplicity of our stuff our possessions, our finances, our apparel. Here's, here's my definition of simplicity of stuff. Limiting what we possess with food and clothing, we'll be content, Paul says. Limiting what we possess and purchase in order to find true wealth in God and practice generosity toward others. That's just a quick summary, I think, of 1 Timothy chapter 6. And again, I could give you verse after verse, Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Don't give me extreme riches, lest I become proud and forget about you. Don't make me poor, lest I'm tempted to steal and and lose my virtue. Feed me with the food that I need. This is the Lord's Prayer. Give me today exactly what I need to flourish. Let me trust you for that. That's the heart of simplicity of stuff. 1 Timothy 2, you can go there. 1 Peter 3 talks about our outer versus our inner beauty. Let your inner person be the same as your outer person. Let your inner person drive. Don't try to impress people with your outer appearance. Impress people with your heart. Impress people with your character. All kinds of passages. But I want to get to our application here because I know we're short on time. How do we actually simplify our stuff? What does it look like for us to actually begin to experience this in cooperation with God, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. How do we allow God to lead us into a simplicity of life with our stuff, our clothing, our possessions, our money? I think there's two things that Paul says here in this passage. If you go down to this third section, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant. So, so wealth can make us arrogant because we think that we've arrive, we think that we've done it in our own strength and power with our own education and our own intellect. Don't be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. 
Wealth, the proverb says, it sprouts wings, and just when you think you've arrived, the goalpost moves again, right? It's unstable. It's not something you can put your hope in, right? Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and willing to share, okay? Karl Marx doesn't get the market on sharing. I'm sorry, right? Like, this is not Marxism. This is just Bible. To be willing to share, okay? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, and this is so good, so that they may take hold of the life that is really life. This is real life. What we're pursuing over here, he says, it's not real, It's artificial, it's superficial, it's not real life. Come over here and experience the life that is truly life. What's been normalized over here in excess is not the life that is truly life. The life over here, Paul says, is comprised of two things. Contentment and generosity. That's it, contentment and generosity. The first thing that Paul, there's two kind of pieces to contentment. The first is inward contentment, right? He says, set your hope on God. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Essentially what Paul's saying is everything you're looking for in money and your possessions, you've already received in Christ. That's contentment. The idea of contentment is an inner freedom that knows everything I'm seeking in, in money and possessions, right? Like security, safety, status, all of that, right? All of that has been given to me in Christ, What you're seeking in possessions, it's a mirage. It will never satisfy. It will never deliver on its promises. So Paul says, learn to be content with God. The idea of contentment, it's a compound word in the Greek. Um, It became uh, famous, uh, Socrates, Aristotle, it was a famous idea uh, from the philosophy of Stoicism, right? So this is kind of making, there's a revival of Stoicism happening. If any of you have read Ryan Holiday's stuff, um, the new atheists, a lot of them have rediscovered like pagan virtue uh, in like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So it's kind of getting recycled again. But again, ancient idea. And essentially Stoicism was a movement that reacted against the immorality and the excess and the opulence of the Roman Empire by teaching self-sufficiency. Auto archaeus. It means self-sufficiency. That's what it means, right? So detach yourself from desiring things, desire less stuff, and just be content in yourself. So Paul takes this idea, and in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. It's something you have to be initiated into, but it's a different kind of contentment than the Stoics. It's not about being content in yourself. It's not about self-sufficiency or some kind of Buddhist idea of killing desire so that you don't desire anything. It's this idea, Paul says, not being full of yourself, but full by yourself with God. Learning to open yourself to the riches and the love and the mercy and the grace of God. Paul isn't saying, kill your desire, right? He's not a Jedi, right? The heart of Jedi teaching is Zen Buddhism. Kill your desires. Paul says, no, take your desires created by God the infinite desire that's been placed in you is a gift by God that was meant for himself and plunge all of those desires into God. Let Jesus be your satisfaction. Let Jesus be your wealth. Christ's sufficiency here is what he's teaching with this idea of contentment. Let Jesus define your identity. Let Jesus define what it means to be rich in love. Love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. 
Be satisfied. That's the same word there, content. Be content with what you have. For he himself, who is he himself? God. God has said to you already, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Money says, I will leave you and I will abandon you. When you get old, when you can't produce for yourself anymore, when you're not smart enough, when life hits you and punches you in the gut, money says, I will leave you. I will forsake you. Just know that's the agreement up front, right? Like you've signed a contract. If you give yourself to money that you know one day it will leave you. And, and God says, I'm the kind of God who doesn't leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. I will not worry. I will not be anxious. What can man do to me? That's the invitation. To remember that in Christ, all the spiritual blessings and all the riches have been given to us. Ephesians chapter one, all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have been poured out on you. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, have an inheritance in Jesus. You don't need the security of money to make you happy and full of joy. You have been forgiven, Paul says. You have been chosen in Christ. You have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. You have been sealed with the spirit. I mean, on and on I could go. And yet, how often do we forget? How often do we neglect our inheritance? I mean, imagine that you were given an inheritance by a wealthy relative. All you have to do is show up at the reading of the will. You're like, no, I'm good. I don't care. You don't show up. Like, how many of us don't show up every day to be reminded by God that we're inheriting the riches of Christ? Paul says, what do you have in Corinthians that you haven't already received? It's all yours. Grab hold of it. Internalize it. Make it the script, the narrative that drives your life. I love these words of Julian of Norwich, a great spiritual writer of a previous generation. God of your goodness, give me yourself, for you are enough for me. What is enough? Enough has to start with God being enough. Augustine says that like this, St. Augustine, all plenty which is not God, my God, is poverty to me. All plenty which is not my God is poverty to me. We have to start inward, but it has to then move outward, right? As we're learning to be content with God, as we're learning that God is our wealth, we're learning to set our hope on God, our vision on God, God we then begin to remember God has provided us richly with all things. That's what he goes on to say. He's richly provided us with all things to enjoy. So God is not anti-money. God is not anti-possessions. Matter of fact, God is the giver of all good things. He gives us possessions to be enjoyed. So we're not talking asceticism here. We're not talking uh, voluntary you know, poverty for everyone, although some may be called to embrace that lifestyle. You are actually invited here to enjoy your stuff but to enjoy less stuff. The call is not to stop being rich, it's, it's to stop living rich and to assuming that more and better is always God's will for our lives. That's the outward practice. It's limiting our possessions, limiting our purchases to open up space to enjoy God and then to share what we have with other people, right? So it starts inward. I'm content with God. I'm receiving his love. Now, as I look at my possession, I'd say, there's this like carefree approach to your stuff. You notice that in Jesus, like all the warnings about wealth, it's not because Jesus is anti those things. It's just because Jesus wants to loosen up our grip. You should have a carefreeness about your possessions, like a take it or leave itness about your stuff. 
you can't take it with you. It all goes back in the box when we die. So in a sense, we are beginning, like when you die, the moment you die, your stuff no longer belongs to you. So what you're doing in limiting your possessions is you're actually beginning the process of dying well. That's kind of a morbid thought. But you're actually beginning the process of divesting yourself of your stuff, which all gets divested when you die. Paul says, food and clothing, with these we will be content. The basic necessities of life. Paul says we've got to learn to limit our stuff, to be content with the basics of life. Paul says I can be content with a lot, I can be content with a little. Paul apparently was wealthy in different seasons of his life, and he was poor. He says, in any season, I've learned how to prosper. The problem in America oftentimes is that, especially in the last couple of decades, I think, with consumerism, is that there's been a shift from basic necessities to luxuries, right? Basic necessities to luxuries. Over the last 50, 60 years, we have seen a rise in prosperity and luxury. Like you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, generations before us, pretty much every generation in history up to the 20th century, other than nobles and elites, cultural elites, lived at that, those bottom two levels, right? Wi-Fi, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, they lived at uh, food and clothing and shelter, right? There's a great picture of like a new Maslow's hierarchy of needs with Wi-Fi at the bottom. Um, we now have risen up the ladder in America and we're focused on those top tiers, transcendence, meaning, purpose, the acquisition of status. G.K. Chesterton said there's two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. And this is a man that was leading a social reform movement in London. So he wasn't just talking about it. So let me just give you two practical things here. And I want to encourage you, I don't do this in church often. Please take out your phone if you, if you have a phone. I want you to snap pictures because I don't have time, and this is all in your practice guide this week, but I just want to film up on the screen, and I want to encourage you to take some pictures here because I want to give you some very practical advice on this uh, invitation here to limit your possessions and purchases. Two things here that I think could be really helpful. These are two things that I'm learning about, and again, I do not have mastered by any means of the imagination, but uh, two very helpful things. One is de-owning and the other, uh, de-owning with our current possessions, and I would say, this is where like minimalism comes in, I would say um, we could start with our home and our clothing is a good place to start. De-owning, not just decluttering, because we don't want to organize more stuff. We actually need to get rid of some stuff. Uh, and then the second thing is being discerning with our purchases. So de-owning and limiting our possessions, and then being more discerning with the things that we purchase going forward. So starting with de-owning, let me just throw these up here again. Yeah, start with vision. What is it you want, right? Simplicity is not just about spending less, bargain hunting, or, you know, get, like divesting all of your resources. It's about a bigger yes. What is it that God is inviting me towards? What, what problem in the world do I want to solve? Am I passionate about? What legacy do I want to leave? Who, who do I want to spend more time with, right? Because managing our stuff is a trade-off of our time. We spend so much time cleaning and organizing and managing our stuff and shopping. I mean, the average person will spend years of their life shopping, and it's like, if I had that back, who could I invest in? What could I give myself towards? How much stress could I avoid? How much distraction could I get rid of in my life? How much environmental impact and how much less of a footprint could I make? I mean, all of these things. What am I modeling for my children, right, in terms of the legacy of my children? I mean, many of us, you're all's generation, younger people in this room, some of you are so passionate about this because you've grown up in excess. I mean, I hear this story all the time. I grew up in Hamilton County. Hated all the opulence and the excess. So what do we do? We just move to Broderpool and we make caramel in Broderpool. 
It's kind of ironic, right? Like we're recreating some of the same excess here that we're rebelling against in the suburbs. It's the same spirit of consumerism. So we want to avoid that. We want to learn contentment. It starts with having a vision for our life. Secondly, set a limit for a simple, reasonable lifestyle. I can't tell you what that is. Only the Holy Spirit can. But I hope that you will ask the Holy Spirit, what is a simple, reasonable lifestyle? I hope that you will invite your community into that conversation, right? We need our community to help us as we're looking at. I know several people in this church who gather together with friends every year. They go over their budgets and they say, hey, here's what I made last year. Let's think together creatively about what it might look like to live a simple lifestyle, to be generous next year. Third thing, all this wisdom for minimalism. Again, moving from idea to action. I'm not going to go through this. This is all in your practice guide this week, but there is really helpful stuff out there. There's all kinds of great examples. Joshua Becker, the minimalists have with starting with small, easy sections of your house. For me, it started with my books. You guys know I have a fetish of books and I love to read. I got rid of hundreds of books and it was very difficult for me. And I've been working on uh, capsule wardrobe, you know, a small 10 or 15 item, 20 item uh, wardrobe. I'm, I'm working through that. There's great, I mean, you can watch uh, Project 333, Courtney Carver, uh, Alice Gregory had a great little thing on J. Crew uh, about the uniform, about the idea of wearing the same clothes. Think like Steve Jobs with his black turtleneck, you know, like that saves so much decision making fatigue, right? Like just not having to think about. I'm a big uniform person. I grew up in private school. I like uniforms. I know some of you are like, that sounds terrible. Okay, but just, just some ideas to get you, to get you thinking, right? Um, these are all different things that come from minimalism. Uh, discerning what you purchase. I'll throw these next couple slides up quickly. Um, you may consider during Lent fasting from purchasing. You know, just use, use, use Lent as a time to maybe stop purchasing and start really investigating what's happening in your heart while you work through some of these issues. Richard Foster has some great principles. Um, just, again, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Rejecting things that produce addiction. Like, I notice I have a compulsive uh, need to buy books <laughs> on Amazon. So I just, like, stopped and said, okay, if I feel this need to buy something, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to wait a week and see if I really need that book or not, right? Uh, for you, that might be something else. It might be coffee, whatever. Reject anything that breeds oppression of others. I mean, just, again, you go on this list. It's really helpful. Next slide, a list of questions that you can ask yourself. We put some of these up in the practice guide this week. Before I purchase something, pick it up and hold it in your hands and say, is this going to add value to my life? Is this going to distract me from pursuing the kingdom of God? I mean, how easy is it to just get online and press buy now and not even go through that process of having to ask those questions? And so just pausing to ask those questions. John Wesley Again, not, John Wesley's got his issues, but um, I think this is just shows you the wisdom of the past on this issue hundreds of years ago. He says, as for apparel, I buy the most lasting and in general, the plainest I can. Now, he was a dour individual. I don't know that I wouldn't want to hang out with him, but this is the pretty consistent wisdom of the past over multiple generations, many continents, many different cultures, this kind of a simplicity of apparel and possessions. And when we do this work, we minimize our stuff and we let go and we limit our purchases and our possessions, it then frees us to be generous. And that's kind of Paul's final admonition. I'm not going to go into that in detail. He's, he just commands us to be rich in good works, right? As we create space in our lives, this isn't just about owning less stuff. It's not about being a minimalist for the sake of being a minimalist. It's saying, okay, now that I've, I've decluttered my life, I've de-owned, I've created space in my stuff, now I can be generous, right? Now I've got more money, I've got more time, I've got possessions to actually give away. And when I say give away your possessions, 
Like, we have poor house ministry. You guys know people donate stuff. Please don't give, like, your underwear with holes. In. Like, I'm not talking about giving your worst. Like, it is not fun to sort that stuff, and I've done that, and then we do that. Like, what if you gave your best? What if you went into your closet, and you found the best thing in there, maybe something that you have some attachment issues, some compulsions with, and you picked it out, and you said, I'm giving my best to poor house, not my worst. I mean, just th- those are the kinds of experiments in generosity. I love the way that Tim Keller, and I'll close uh, with this, Tim Keller says this, uh, he has this phrase, financial promiscuity. And I think it's really, really genius. Uh, he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. I just love that. Leslie Newbigin says, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. Now, I'll just refer you back to our sermon on Acts 4 if you missed that. But this is the idea of just radical class distinction. In my economic bracket, what would it look like for me to live in such a way that my friends, while we're on our trips and we're doing our things, they look at me like, why do you do that? I mean, a great example, Andy Crouch, a writer, who's been very successful, his wife's a physics professor, every couple of years, he shared this at a conference, every couple of years, he tithes on his wealth. That's insane to me. Like his total wealth, he tithes on that every couple of years. Like that's just an example of like, what, what would it look like for you? And you're like, well, you know, a tithe on my wealth would be like 10 bucks. Okay, fine. But in your class brackets, what would generosity look like in such a way that people would put their hands over their mouth and say, why would you do that? And that's the kind of life that Paul invites us to experience. When you get to start living like that, you live with the kind of freedom and joy that you have never experienced. And Timothy says, that is the life that is truly life. With that being said, let's put our stuff away. We're going to take communion here. I have permission from our kids team that they are going to hold our children and love our children for a few more minutes. Stephanie came up to me this morning and said, just go, please. I want you to just finish. So I'm gonna finish and I wanna just close and I wanna pray for us and we're gonna take communion and I know we're a few minutes late. But let me just invite you into a period of reflection. Let me just invite you to open up your heart, your mind to God and just say, God, what is your, what, what do you want from me? What is my response to your words here today? As we practice this week, contentment and generosity in our families, we ask these hard questions and we look inside and we ask what's going on as we seek to part with possessions through tears, through anger, maybe, through, maybe some of you are mad at me right now, how dare you? Just like, what is going on inside of you? And let's just bring our hearts and minds before God. And I want to remind you of the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. Now, the one sown among the thorns, he talks about the parable of the four, four soils. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth and possessions choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Is that me? Is that you? Is God's good work in our, in our hearts being choked out because of our worry and our concern over our stuff?